God, I, I need your help and we need your help to, um, well, to lay aside some of the biases that we have grown up with. And more than the biases, some of the deep skepticism that has infected our spirit, a skepticism that doesn't come from the scripture, a skepticism that comes from the culture, an anti-supernatural, rationalist, scientific culture that leaves no room for the supernatural to be done. Yet, Father, we read in your word that you are a God of power who loves to confound the wisdom of the wise and show us that you rule. So we have to be open to the fact that you move in ways that we cannot understand, nor can we explain. So I just pray, Lord God, that you would grant us open minds, but also minds that are rooted ultimately in the scripture and the glory of Jesus. So I pray for your help for each of us as we um, enter into this text in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, I, I used the analogy of a prism. Um, for the church, which I think is a good analogy, and I just kind of want to start there and, and then move down, is uh, prism, as you know, is just a piece of glass or crystal in which light shines and then it that disperses the light. And that, to me, is a picture of the body of Christ, and those separation of light is basically how God has gifted each of us in diverse ways to shine forth his glory. And each of us has to discover what those different lights that our life is meant to project, namely through the gifting and how God welds gifting to personality and creates a unique beam of light through your life and so that you might shine forth and together we might um, glorify God through these things we call the spirit gifts. But it's God shining through us. That was the analogy last week. And this week we're going to come to look at particular beams of light. That is particular gifts. We've been kind of general up to this point, but at this point we are going to look at specific gifts. That's where the kind of... Um, potential controversy comes in. But let me, let me enter into it with two scenarios. And both of these scenarios are true. The first scenario happened in late July 2009. So it's just a few months ago. A young woman in her early 30s, a public school teacher, comes into church, Parkway Community Church, on a Wednesday morning. Now this particular woman has been ravaged by back spasms to the point where she can hardly work and at points she has to lay down on the floor of her classroom and she can hardly teach. And it's a condition she's been in for three to four years, and it's been intensifying as time has gone on. And she has um, sought medical advice. She's been to the doctor. She's had epidurals. She has had physical therapy, and she's had consultations. At one point, the doctor says, you just need to change jobs, as if a uh, public school teacher is a heavy lifting job. Um, but she loves to teach. And just so you're clear, this particular woman is not some walk-in that we have no history on. She's somebody's daughter in this church who's been here and associated with this church a lot longer than I have. So her condition is an established condition and an intensifying worse condition. So she comes in late July into the church, and a couple of Christian people lay hands on her. Not something weird, shouldn't be weird to us, because the Bible talks about laying on of hands. Jesus did it, the apostles did it, the church did it. They laid hands on her and they prayed for her. And from that moment... The spasms lifted. In the last three months, she's had one when she was used to having six or seven a day. Now, some would be skeptical and say, well, that was just, just happened to be at that time. And that's that poison of skepticism that keeps us oftentimes from acknowledging that God does things. Is it by accident that for three, almost four years, there's been intensifying pain in which 
Doctors and physical therapy and epidurals have not helped her. And then at the moment when some Christian people lay hands on her and pray for her, that those spasms are lifted. She goes back to work and she's able to do what God created her to do, to teach. I don't think there's any accident. And I'll tell you what, this woman is not skeptical. She knows that she was in pain before and now she's not in pain. That her family knows, her parents and, and her husband know that something happened at that point. And so when she goes back to the classroom, people are like, wow, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing great. What happened? What can she say? Certainly wasn't the doctor, wasn't the epidural, wasn't the physical therapy. She has to basically say, well, people prayed for me. In other words, a.k.a. God did it. And she gives glory to God for what happened to her. It's, she was, I know we don't like to call it this, but she was healed by the divine mercy of God. We shouldn't have a problem saying that. Do we believe that that happens today? I just want to say 100% yes, and we all should be able to say, yes, he does that. That's scenario number one, God healing a person. Scenario number two comes from church history. Um, In the life of one of the greatest preachers, arguably one of the greatest preachers ever to have lived, a man by the name of Charles Spurgeon, whom many have called the Prince of Preachers, lived in the 1800s in, in Britain. And there's a unique, extraordinary story that he writes in his own autobiography. And uh, before I read this section of his autobiography, let me, let me just say that Charles Spurgeon is not a quack. He's respected by people on almost every side of the theological fence. He's a deep theological thinker and penetrating in his sermons. You can still download them online. He's written, I think, more in terms of volume than anybody else in, in Christian history. But this is what he writes about something that happened in his congregation that that defies scientific explanation. This is what he writes. This is his own autobiography. This is his writing. He says, while preaching in the hall, and he preached in a music hall, while preaching in the hall on one occasion, I deliberately pointed to a man in the midst of the crowd and said, there is a man sitting there who is a shoemaker. He keeps his shop open on Sunday. Not a good thing back then. Keep your shop open on Sunday. It was open last Sabbath morning. He took nine pence. That's uh, monetary value, nine. You know what nine is. And there was four pence profit out of it. His soul is sold for four pence. In other words, he was accusing this man of ripping off a customer. And the story continues. So just a scenario. He's preaching. All of a sudden, he points to somebody in the congregation. He says, there's a shoemaker. And he's basically ripped off a customer. The story continues. This is a unique part. A city missionary, when doing his rounds, met with this man. And seeing he was reading one of my sermons, he asked the question, Do you know Mr. Spurgeon? Yes, replied the man. I have every reason to know him. I've been to hear him. And under his preaching, by God's grace, I have become a new creature in Christ Jesus. Shall I tell you how it happened? I went to the music hall and took my seat in the middle of that place. Mr. Spurgeon looked at me as if he knew me. And in his sermon, he pointed to me and told the congregation that I was a shoemaker and that I had kept my shop open on Sundays. And I did, sir. I should not have minded that. But he also said that I took nine pence the Sunday before and that there was four pence profit out of it. I did take nine pence that day and four pence was just the profit. But how he should know that I could not tell. He had no clue how Spurgeon got that information about what he did in the privacy of his own shop. They didn't have People magazine back then, or Access Hollywood, or the Inquirer. Then it struck me, this is the man speaking in the autobiography of Spurgeon, then it struck me, it was God 
who had spoken to my soul through him. Which led him to be convicted of sin and in essence be converted. Like, all of a sudden, Spurgeon pointing out a man he knew nothing about and revealing something in his life that then brought him to faith because he recognized that Spurgeon's voice was the voice of God. Now Spurgeon continues, and this is interesting, this wasn't just a one-time thing. And he wasn't a charismatic, at least not in the way we use the term. He said, I could tell as many as a dozen similar cases in which I pointed at somebody in the hall without having the slightest knowledge, the knowledge derived by ordinary means of grapevine, printed, newspaper, whatever, I could tell as many as a dozen similar cases in which I pointed at somebody in the hall without having the slightest knowledge of the person or any idea that what I said was right, except that I believed I was moved by the Spirit to say it. Now, let me just say that last phrase again. He believed. I believe, this is what he says, I was moved by the Spirit of God to say what I did not come to know by ordinary means. That was scenario number two. Pretty extraordinary. And a guy who's respected by a lot of different people. Both of those scenarios, in many respects, are extraordinary because they bypass ordinary human means of understanding or healing. Ordinary means is uh, pharmaceutical or medical. But in this case, God bypassed those normal things and through the laying on of hands and praying... Uh, This woman was released of her pain um, in her back. And in the case of Charles Spurgeon, there is this extraordinary communication by the Spirit of God to his mind outside the normal realm of learning to communicate. And in both cases, both people rejoice and give glory to God. Now that is, I think, the purpose of the gifts of the Spirit. Both the ordinary ones and the extraordinary ones. As in the end, God's people, through both, because God's Spirit moves in power in both the ordinary and extraordinary, for the people to sense that God is here. His power is still here. His presence is still here. That we don't believe in a power that is theoretical, but is real and active in the body. And that's one of the things that that, that is the main thing the Spirit gifts are supposed to do. Now, those two scenarios were were chosen because the list of gifts that Paul gives us in these verses are nothing less than extraordinary. Beams of light, which many of us may not know by experience. So let me read this text, and then we're going to look at just a few of them. Paul writes in verse 7, I'm going to put it in context. Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And that is the main point. The gifts he is about to go on and list are simply a sampling to make the main point, And that is the Spirit of God, one Spirit, gives diverse gifts to different people. And I think there's wisdom in that. It keeps each of us from being prideful. We only have a little piece of the pie, not the whole pie. And he goes on to list them. He says, to one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. To another the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and still another the interpretation of tongues. All of these, the work of the one and the same Spirit, and that 
tells us it comes from the same source and therefore will have consistency and operate to the same goal. That's what ties them together. And he gives them to each one just as he determines. Just as he determines. Now we have to wrestle with this list of gifts and respond to it. And I think we can respond to it in one of three ways. We can respond to it by concluding that they are no longer valid, that they no longer exist. That the kinds of gifts of healing and miracles, the gift of faith and prophecy and tongues, the interpretation of tongues and the uh, ability to discern spirits, presumably through the prophetic mouth, are no longer valid. So we would say that these verses don't really have any direct relevance to us. That's one position. And not a position with which I hold and I cannot hold quite simply. And I've said it before. I've been there, but I'm no longer there. Not because I've experienced something, but because I've just continued to dig in the Scripture and I find no reason that it should have died. The second response is we can be agnostic. That's you don't know. I don't know whether the gifts exist or not. Agnostic position. I, I assume there are probably many here that are probably in that camp. I don't really know um, whether they're around or not. They make me uncomfortable, but I don't really know. Or there's a third position which is essentially to take the instruction of Paul in chapter 14, verse 1, that is to eagerly, first of all, believing that they actually do exist, and then to eagerly desire them with a sense of humility and honesty and sincerity. So if he gives them, he gives them, and if not, he doesn't. And that third particular category is my response. Um, If someone asked me if I've ever spoken in tongues, no, I haven't. But I prayed for it, and if God gave me the gift, I'd use it. That's the position, the third position along which I find my own heart convinced. So those are the three basic positions, responses to this text. And the one I'm going to go down is to say that and suggest to us that these are available to the church and should be sought after, and then we give God the sovereign freedom to give us them if he so wishes. Now he lists nine gifts here. And again, they're just sampling. You'll notice there are some that are missing, like service and administration, although that's included later, or, or teaching. So this is just a, just a sample to make the main point, and that is the Spirit does manifest himself in, in diverse ways in the body and through different gifts. We're going to look at just the first five, and I'm going to group a couple of them together because they overlap so much. And in the case of the last part, one is a subset of the other. That's confusing what I just said. The last four, however, are picked up in greater detail in chapter 14, namely tongues, interpretation of tongues, prophecy, and then the discerning of spirits. So I'm going to kind of shift that to chapter 14 where we're going to deal with them in an entire message, tongues, and then in a different message, um, prophecy. So the first five, the whole point of this message, what are these? Because part of the key of being able to use them is understanding what they are. The list. The first one, he says here, and I'm going to group these two together, to the one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom, to another the message of knowledge. That's the first two gifts. There's a message of wisdom and the second gift, a message of knowledge. Now let me state the obvious. Paul does not define these gifts. I would have loved it if he would have had a little footnote or a little blowout bubble to the side to say this is exactly what these gifts are. Apparently, this church knew what they were, and he assumed that knowledge. But we don't have that today. So we have to search elsewhere in Scripture if there is an answer to understand better what these gifts were of wisdom and knowledge. 
But you do notice that both of them are communication gifts because it is a message or literally translated a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. So it's some kind of a communication. But what muddies the water for many is that Paul oftentimes uses the word wisdom and knowledge, it seems, interchangeably without a discernible difference. So you have, for example, Romans chapter 11, verse 33, is talking about the riches of God's wisdom and knowledge. Or talking about Jesus in whom the treasures of wisdom and knowledge dwell. Or when he's praying for the Ephesians, he's praying that they would have wisdom and knowledge. So there is a ton of overlap between, I think, these words, wisdom and knowledge, making it difficult to discern which is one gift and which is the other gift. Or are they largely um, synonymous? And, And I think they probably have a tremendous amount of overlap. But what does it mean then to have a gift of wisdom of, or a gift of a message of wisdom knowledge? Now we could just say, well, this person who has a gift of knowledge is somebody with an encyclopedic mind. What's equal MC squared? The person is able to answer. Or the person of wisdom is somebody who's able to apply knowledge practically. That's the Old Testament idea of wisdom. The difficulty is that the word wisdom in, in this epistle, this, this letter, all the way through, always orients itself to the cross. So that Paul could say in chapter 1, we preach Christ crucified, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so wisdom in his mind always ties to the gospel. Which, again, kind of bringing it down, probably means that this communication gift is an ability to understand aspects of the gospel communicate aspects of the gospel, and apply them in specific circumstances. So it's gospel-oriented. It's a person who's able to understand the insights of the gospel, to be able to communicate it to specific situations. And you might say at this point, well, what's the difference between that and teaching? Well, many have concluded that this particular message of wisdom and knowledge taken from the gospel and applied to specific situations This message is not derived by ordinary means. Like when I teach, you know, I study, read, commentaries, think about, pray about. So I'm working through the normal processes of preparing for teaching as a teacher would do in a public school. But God still uses that ordinary preparation. But many have concluded that this particular message of wisdom and knowledge bypasses that process. And the reason they say that is rooted in chapter 13, where the gift of knowledge is coupled with tongues and prophecy, which, as many understand them, are these spontaneous gifts, much like Spurgeon experienced in his day, in which God brought something to his mind, a message he needed to tell a shoemaker, and he delivered the message and the man was saved. That probably is what's in view in this gift, this gift, this message of wisdom and knowledge is that God brings something to your mind, an insight into the gospel communicated specifically to a situation that then brings either conviction or brings um, healing or brings encouragement or any number of possible edifying effects. So that's probably what the gift, those two gifts are. Now let me just back away and say, well, because some of you didn't follow what I just said. The way I think about it is this, is that, yes, that probably is the gift in view. That the Spirit of God at times, in particular situations, in particular people's lives, He gives that message of wisdom and knowledge then to be brought to another. But in my thinking, 
Really, all true wisdom and all true knowledge ultimately are gifts of God anyway, whether it's derived from common, ordinary means, or it's a kind of a supernatural impartation of the Spirit. So on a practical level, whether one gains wisdom through experience or study or education, or whether it's directly communicated, they still are gifts of God, still to be used for the body's good. So if you have a gift of wisdom, be it imparted by the Spirit, or be it through the providential work of the Spirit, it still is to be used in the body. So in one sense... I suppose if you have wisdom, you need to use it. If you have knowledge, you need to use it, regardless of whether it has come through a spontaneous work of the Spirit or whether it's gained through ordinary means. But I do think in that sense of what uh, a Spurgeon experienced, not just once, but multiple times, we probably, on the most part, given the, the dynamic of this church, probably are not entirely open to that idea. That God may indeed bring to your mind something that needs to be said to somebody else. If that's what the gift entails, that means we have to pay attention. And when there's a strong sense of a message you need to give to somebody, I know this sounds charismatic, but it is what I believe this particular gift is. And it brought down to the specifics that you need to be faithful to that. Again, under the standard and the scrutiny of the Bible, which is our highest and infallible revelation. Everything's checked by that and then deliver it to somebody. That's, I think, what those two gifts are. Gift of a message of wisdom and message of knowledge. The third gift that's mentioned here is the gift of faith. He says here, verse 9, to another, faith by the same Spirit. Now that, in one sense, is a confusing one because everybody is called to believe, have faith. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. Every one of us is called upon to trust the merits of the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the sufficiency of that for our salvation. Every one of us. So what this gift cannot be is saving faith. That's what it is not. Nor is it degrees of saving faith as if that person has a deeper faith in the sufficiency of the cross and salvation. Because all of us, through the entirety of our life, are supposed to grow in that faith. So what's not in view, I believe, is faith or saving faith. But rather, what is in view is this kind of, what you might call, spirit-generated confidence about a situation, an event, or a circumstance. The most helpful person in this regards, in, in my understanding, was D.A. Carson in his, his work, Showing the Spirit, in which he defined this gift of faith as this. The gift of faith enables a believer to trust God to bring about a, a certain thing or things for which he or she cannot claim some divine promise recorded in Scripture. When God makes a promise, we should trust fully that he is going to follow through on that. So he's saying, outside of the promises of Scripture... This gift of faith is that spirit-generated confidence that God's going to do something that isn't specifically spoken of in Scripture. That is, I think, the best understanding of what this gift of faith is. Which means it may be temporary for a period of time. That God may give you this confidence, and it is not self-generated. It's the Spirit giving you this confidence that God is going to do something. And then when it happens, it may be that then it's fulfilled. It could be the assumption underneath 
a lot of the miracles we see the apostles do. Now, it's not stated explicitly, but if you kind of think about the fullness of the New Testament, you realize, I don't think that the apostles were able to heal and do miracles apart from the will of the Spirit directing them. Hence, you have Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2, who's sick and almost dies, and it doesn't mention any kind of divine healing. You have Timothy, who has these perennial stomach problems and apparently wasn't able to be healed, which tells me they weren't able to heal at will. So how was Peter then, in chapter 3 of Acts, able to walk up to a man? Actually, let me back up. He's walking to the temple, and there's a cripple over there crying out, and something prompts him to turn. Now, it might have just been the man's voice, but then he walks over to the man, and the man, you know, is begging. He says, gold and silver have I none. But then the next thing Peter does gives us an indication that he knew that that man was going to be healed. Because he says, rise up. And the man rises up. Now, it would have been a little bit embarrassing had Peter walked into the temple, directed and said to this man and people watching, this is the apostle, the chief apostle, saying, rise up and walk. And he doesn't. A huge failure. Could it be that Peter had the sense, this spirit-generated confidence, God wants to heal that man. And with that gift of faith, in that moment, he walks over and says, rise up, and the man rises up. That that gift of being able to do a miracle is accompanied by a gift of confidence that the Spirit's going to do it. You're not just thinking, oh, I hope he shows up. No, he's like, no, there's, and I recognize there's a, a huge subjectivity to that. But you know what? There's a lot of subjectivity in the Scripture, and I don't have a problem with it. Um, that doesn't mean we don't, or don't ignore, we ignore our rationality or our thinking or our reason, but nevertheless, God does move in here. Faith, in my thinking, is largely subjective. I think I've seen this gift. We haven't labeled it this, but I think we've seen it in our church. I remember a Sunday morning in which we were passing around mics, and people were able to share what God's doing in their life. And there was a man sitting right over there, I remember he stood up and grabbed the mic and he said, you know, I, I believe that the Lord is going to give us his property over here. At that point, it wasn't our property. He was convinced. I know that the Lord is going to give us his property. And he was so convinced that he contributed funds to it. Now, what you may not know is the man who owned that property was hostile to the church and at different points would say, I'd never sell to the church. So this man's confidence and the confidence seen in his contribution, it's like putting a deposit, I know this is going to happen. Despite the fact that it seemed from all outward appearance, it's never going to happen. And then lo and behold, ironically, the man dies. It goes to his children. They don't have hostility to the church and they sell it to us. And it's just like kind of like, wow. And he believed it before it seemed rationally feasible. I think that's an expression of the gift of faith, that he gave a man a faith about a piece of property, which now we own. And now the little yellow house is on, and people are, kids are coming to Christ through. I think that's, that's an expression of the gift of faith. It gives you that faith in the moment. I think another person who, who has, who has um, exercised this gift of faith, or should I say been given the gift of faith, because it's a spirit-generated confidence. It's not something you can work up in yourself. I, I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. It's something that is given to you. That's, hence, it's a spirit gift. It's Ron Marlette. Came here with nothing. Shoestring, maybe. I don't know if he'd agree that he has the gift of faith, but I see it in him. 
He had nothing to work with, but he believed God was going to do a work here in Solano County. He believed it. Well, who gave him that belief? It's not in Scripture anywhere. I think the Spirit of the living God gave him a sense that this is going to happen. And then he moved in that gift of faith, and now we see it coming to fruition, and it's, it's amazing. I think that is the gift of faith. Now, if, if that is the gift of faith, faith, that means we have to be self-aware when the Spirit gives us a sense of confidence about something. Again, it is subjective. I recognize that. But the confidence is something. A conviction is something that does happen in your soul. It has a sense of, I've got to do this, compulsion to it, to pay attention. And when God places on your heart a sense that he is going to do something, instead of suppressing it, again, Scripture is our ultimate and final guide and judge and standard. But most of what God brings to the heart resonates right along with the standards of Scripture. Then you go for it, trusting that God is going to do something. The gift of faith. And He may give it to people at different points, different times, regarding different issues, events, or circumstances. What an amazing place Parkway Community Church would be if people paid attention to that. I really believe God's calling me to to start something. And then to trust Him and to start moving and watch as God's power unfolds, and kind of like Peter walked over saying, rise and walk, you're able to say, this ministry I can't do, but rise and walk, and God does it. And it gives you the faith to do it. That, I think, is the gift of, of faith. And that's not by accident, because now we're going to go to the last two, which I'm going to put together as well, that that gift of faith precedes the miraculous. That God would often couple this sense of confidence that he's going to do something with this fourth and fifth gift, namely healing and miraculous powers. He says to another, middle of verse 9, gifts of healing by that one spirit to another miraculous powers. You just have to stop here for a second and pause. Did Paul really mean that ordinary people we're going to exercise these gifts. Most of us are fine with Jesus operating the gift of healing and the gift of miracles. We're fine with the apostles operating gifts of healing and miracles. Or even the 70 that are sent out to do the gifts of healing and miracles. But Paul is acknowledging that people in this messed up church, people who he says are not wise, They're not the cream of the crop. That is ordinary people in this church are operating using this miraculous gifts. The miraculous as well as healing, which is the subset of these miraculous things. Ordinary people were doing this in a messed up church filled with division, selfishness, and an overemphasis on certain gifts. It's unfortunate that many of us, when we think of a gift of healing or the gift of miracles, certain embarrassing images come to mind. I know that's what comes to my mind when I think about it. I think of theatrical lights, smoke machines, energetic choir, dramatic music, TV cameras, and a guy in a slick suit who forges healing usually followed by a little commercial saying, you too can have a healing cloth for 
And that's what pops into our mind. People whacked out, people who are exhibitionists. And so we're embarrassed and we're turned off, as we should be. But they are in the list here. So let's do the wise thing and not throw out the potential gift. I said potential gift. The Spirit determines who and when the gifts are given. Let's not throw out the potential gift with the dirty bathwater of forgery and misuse. Let me put another image in your mind that I think is probably a, a bit more in the spirit of Jesus. A janitor who works in the real Linda Union School District. A Christian man, very shy. And he has the knowledge that, that there is a woman in his congregation who is bedridden with painful arthritis. He's mopping the floor one day, and he has this sense that he needs to pray for her. And her face keeps coming to his mind, but he's kind of a shy person, so he just keeps forcing it out. But it keeps coming back stronger and stronger and stronger. And with it, this impulse, I need to pray for her, and not at a distance, but, but God's calling me to go to her. And it's a little bit outside of his personality comfort zone. He fights with it, argues with it, but in the end he knows, and I think this is probably the gift of faith faith at work, he knows that he needs to do this. And so finally, he kind of half-Nelsons his shy personality, makes the necessary arrangements, and, and walks into her room sheepishly. He walks up to her bedside, afraid, Kneels down, takes her hand, her shriveled hand in his, his shaking fingers, and he offers a broken prayer out of this leading that God has brought him to her bed. And he simply says, Lord, in your mercy, will you show forth your grace and heal this woman? And then he gets up and he leaves, afraid. And over the next three days, three, four days, the pain of her arthritis subsides so that now she gets up out of bed and she's able to engage in family activities. And she knows that she has experienced the touch, not of a man, but of the mercy of Jesus who accomplishes this kind of thing through His people. She is overjoyed and gives glory to God, exalts Jesus, which is exactly what the gifts are for. Meanwhile, the man who is of shy personality, who fought with it, but went and, and, and in a frightened way prayed for her, is humbled to tears that God would even use him in this amazing way and then has a renewed courage that perhaps God wants him to do this again as the Spirit leads. And he comes to find out that God does lead him in that way, and God does use him in that way. Not every time, not afraid of failure, but that God does use him in his own broken, frail way to bring healing to people's bodies. And not in a way where there's pomp and circumstance, TVs, TV cameras, smoke, theatrical lights, but in the simplicity of a private room taking a woman's hand. That's a better image of how Jesus works through His people. Can that happen today? 
I think some of us in here are really skeptical that God would do that. The question is why? If it's your theology, that's one thing. I respect if you're a cessationist and you don't believe God does this. I don't agree with you, but I, I respect it. But I suspect, as I prayed at the beginning, that we have been infected with a Western culture that minimizes, indeed wants to annihilate the supernatural. So when we hear things like, wow, this woman was healed of her back spasms, immediately we have this skepticism. And that's kind of odd considering the entire Bible is filled with the supernatural. It's as if we're okay with the supernatural in this world, but in our world, if somebody says, man, I saw... A demon that had oppressed this woman, cast out. We're like, that guy's a quack. Jesus can do it. The apostles can do it. The 70 can do it. It seems that people in the normal body can do it. But when somebody does it in our time, wow, that's messed up. That can't happen. We have this huge wall between the biblical world and our world. And why is that? If it's not theological, I'll tell you what it is. It's philosophical. The deep down, we don't believe that God does the supernatural. And that's a little bit of a problem. Especially when Paul can pray for the Ephesians and say, I pray that God would strengthen you with all his might according to his glorious power. How can you pray that unless you believe the supernatural power of God is available to the church? It's not just that a God could back then heal a woman or, or do something that's outside the normal means of things. I think it can. And what needs to be renewed in the church is not so, much, not so much a renewal of the gifts, although that is a part of it, but a renewal of our faith in the power of the Spirit of God. And to believe that as we look to Him, as we seek to operate in confidence in Him, according to His leading, discovering our gifts and then letting it go, that God will show His power in and through you really have to wrestle with why, why don't I? Why am I so skeptical? And I think it's, it's an infection in the church. It's an infection in the church. Because it takes these verses and it basically says, they no longer apply, I might as well cut them out, which is a bit of a problem. Could be for us. I remember I wrestled with this when we got into a car in India. 2004. Chuck Korea, Ignatius, John, and myself. And um, one of the people in the car was uh, Daniel Yohanan, who is K.P. Yohanan's son, um, who's the head of Gospel for Asia. An amazing man. Anyway, his, his son was sitting in, I think, the passenger seat, and then the driver, and actually it was reversed because they have the steering wheel on the wrong side. And I remember them looking back and telling us, they said, you know, um, we believe and we have seen God do amazing works. We see him as we are preaching the gospel. We see him heal people. And people are coming to Christ over there by the droves. And I remember immediately, you know what came up in me? And I believe it can happen theoretically and theologically, is that sense of skepticism. How can I know that's true? And why is it that we're so skeptical when we perhaps should be a little bit more on the benefit of the doubt side of things and say, glory to God. Unless it's a guy in a slick suit with smoke machines and theatrical lights, why not affirm that God is alive and powerful in the world around us? 
and to recognize that our own culture has infected us and given us a blind eye to the supernatural. All of this, um, my friends, I, I hope that at the center we're reawakened to the power of God and the fact that he may have given some of you some gifts that you're not even aware of yet because you didn't, weren't open to them. And if you believe theologically and theoretically the power of God can do these things, then I, I would recommend that you start exploring. It doesn't hurt to go to a person's room, kneel down and take their hand and pray for healing, especially if God gives you that sense of confidence, that gift of faith that accompanies it oftentimes. A person's never going to reject you praying for them, but you may discover that God uses you in a unique way. I understand that particular gift. It's not always by our will. We can't exercise it at its will. It's by the direction of God's Spirit. But to explore it, you might find that God uses you in an amazing way to bring the healing mercy and power of Christ to somebody that will, that will encourage them in tremendous ways. I recognize God doesn't heal everybody. Sometimes God wants to show His power in preserving people through the pain and teaching them amazing lessons about dependence, about humility, and so forth. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't at different times want to increase people's faith by saying, I'm still here. My power. My power is still here. And I love you. And so let me release these back spasms. you believe that? Let me just ask you if you would pray a simple prayer. If you're theologically open. Just pray that God, actually you could pray this either way. Pray that God would renew within us as a congregation, faith in his power. Not in a theoretical, theological way, but in a very real way that his power is really here. And then pray, how would God have you explore and use that for his glory and for the sake of the church? I don't think we have to be afraid of these as long as the scripture is our guide, Christ is our focus, and humility is our attitude. You just pray that prayer with me this morning as the worship team comes.